श्री गुरुवर्षा की जय परंपरा editor of the sacred sound, turning it into the form, literary form of the Veda, the Puranas, Itihasas, and so on and so forth. Most voluminous body of literature and certainly of sacred literature known to humanity. So that great author, Yas who is sometimes considered the Adi Guru, the gurus who follow after him, they have to speak in such a way that their speech is a further continuation, illumination on the revelation penned by him, through him. I guess you could say it was, was penned. So in that sense, he's the original guru, but he had a guru. <laughs> so the texts do emphasize this point in a number of ways, again and again. So the guru of Vyas is the Adi guru in one sense. Adi means original. Uh, is Narada. In another sense, of course, Krishna is the Adi guru. Um, but here, Narada is instructing Vyas, and Vyas was experiencing some despondency after having compiled so much of the Vedic literature, and he was wondering why he was not feeling complete after this uh, exercise. And so the, uh, the problem corresponds with the solution. Without the problem, there's no solution. <laughs> so the solution appeared on the scene in the form of Narada to instruct him. Mm-hmm. And we've heard his instructions, and now the balance of this chapter, the last part, is the beginning of a reiteration of those teachings in another form. Let me quote the text, read the translation, and I'll explain. Aham pratitabhave balam mune Dasyatsu kasyaschana veda vadinam nirupito balate vajoginam shushushane prabhushi nirvivikshatam. He says, O Vyas, aham purati tabhave. Bhavamune. Oh, my dear Muni, Vyas, the Rishi, um, his student, he said that previously, Purati Tabhave, I was born. Ati hmm? Tabhave. Um, Ati means. La, like uh, a lot. So here, 
long time ago, he says, I was born a previous life. Long time here, he is referring to in a previous day of Brahma. Then is a long time. You may know that the among all the different theistic spiritual traditions, Hinduism and Buddhism, as much as it very much follows cosmologically Hinduism, um, but Hinduism has the longest sense of time as far as the duration of the world and so on and so forth. I think the, I don't know what he was, a physicist or astronomer, Carl Sagan, um, emphasized that point. He was a little fascinated by, amongst the different theistic traditions, how India's time spans, Hinduism's time spans, how they looked at the world um, in relation to time, duration, and so forth, had more correspondence with modern uh, observance in uh, science than other traditions. In other words, Hindus don't say that the world is 6,000 years old, which is a, which is a big problem for some of the Christians with in regard to scientific evidence that uh, sheds some, casts some doubt on that. Um, so long, long periods of time, the day of Brahma, the, I've often said uh, in more recent times that the, the Goswamis, the, the, the great Acharyas, teachers in our lineage, and in all of the schools of Vedanta, they are preoccupied with consciousness, not with matter. There are these two sides to the world of material experience. There's the observer and the observed. So, according to Vedanta, then, this is consciousness and matter. Consciousness is observing and matter is observed. It matters because consciousness is there to observe it and uh, to, uh, to contemplate it, think about it, and so forth. And so, preoccupied, preoccupied as they are with consciousness, which is kind of diametrically opposed to the scientific preoccupation with matter that reaches the point in some circles of um, placing consciousness within matter. Um, a kind of a, a monism, a, a naturalistic, materialistic monism, if you will. There's also a spiritual monism that subjugates matter uh, to consciousness to the extreme in the form of, for example, uh, Shankar's Advaitavad. It says that matter doesn't really exist. It's only consciousness. Because we, we, we differ with both sides. But at any rate, in, in, in all the Vedantins, as opposed to a lot of the modern scientific thinking, they, thinkers, they weigh in on the side of consciousness. They explore it in, in a way that is possible to plumb the depths of consciousness and its significance. In other words, it's not possible to understand it comprehensively um, 
by a methodology that would be useful for understanding matter and its workings, its forces. I think there are, what, four primary forces of nature that science has determined. I don't know all of them, but I know there's gravity and electromagnetics and and I think there's a couple of others. Um, so the, the methods by which we have come to understand those forces will not be very useful for understanding consciousness. This is a very different approach that the uh, rishis, the Vedantists, the yogis and so forth have, have taken. And so they get a result that doesn't really compute with the naturalists, the physicalists, the materialists and so forth who want to understand it all in the same way that one can come to understand something, and perhaps something considerable, about the, uh, the details of the movement of, 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 of nature. Hmm? And so preoccupied as the Vedantists, the transcendentalists, are with consciousness, when they speak about the natural world, they speak about it in ways that are also difficult for materialists uh, in the scientific community, for example, to relate to. Not only is the way they talk about consciousness difficult for them to relate to, but it's difficult for them to relate to the way they talk about um, material nature. They talk about it, that is to say, more poetically than precisely and mathematically and, and so forth. Preoccupied as they are with consciousness, which more readily... Um, lends itself to being talked about in more poetic language, which I like to think of as as a kind of participatory language, more so than, say, math, which is more of a controlling, um, uh, descriptive, but lends itself to controlling type of um, orientation to the world. Um, I've given an example many times that you know, in poetry the moon can fly, have wings and fly across the sky. So it tends to extend the world uh, into the, uh, the possibilities that, that, uh, that don't work mathematically, but possibilities that we sense as human beings are there. Because we're sensing from a Vedanta point of view ourselves and the possibilities of consciousness, which are great and uh, extraordinary in comparison to matter. I've likened before the possibilities of matter to ice and the possibilities of consciousness to water. Not that the soul is a transformation of matter, as water is a transformation of ice or vice versa. That shouldn't be taken that far, the analogy. But the possibilities in ice are limited in comparison to the possibilities from water. From water, we are getting the light here with our microhydro system, for example. And uh, water is life. Ice, well, <laughs> it's a cold life. <laughs> so um, we sense, then, from a spiritual point of view, spiritual orientation of life, that, that there are great possibilities that lie for us. And, uh, 
uh, human life, it's where consciousness is coming to the fore. And so, uh, song and poetry, and so the ways of kind of through language, somewhat getting closer. To, it's not precise, but then again, it's something you cannot get a grip on in the same way that you can matter. It's, uh, it's it, consciousness, its source is said to be unknown and unknowable. About Brahman, it is said in Upanishads, Brahman means the great consciousness that uh, underlies everything that we are like of a likeness to qualitatively. And those who it said those who say they know Brahman, they don't know Brahman. Those who say they don't know Brahman, they know Brahman. So uh, the the very idea of getting a grip on everything and fully possessing it and knowing it and so forth, is, is not part of the spiritual discipline. It, it moves forward with an acceptance and, and, and a, of and a comfort with the idea that there's some unknowing that will be perpetual, but it's a kind of a comforting unknowing in the hands of the unknowable, and it means also in the hands of that which where all all possibilities lie, even possibilities beyond which I could think and imagine and so forth. So it may also be, and it is, um, especially in Gaudiya Vedanta, likened to to, to, to to love, which is which is, there's a kind of unknowing in love. There's always a questioning whether he loves me or not, uh, or whether she does uh, to some extent. Uh, um, uh, but there's a, it, it's not a kind of unknowing at the same time that one wants to run away from. You want to stay there. It's comforting. Um, so I mention this all because here we have the mention of the previous day of Brahma and the long periods of time posited in the, in, in the Hindu sacred texts and so forth. And while there is some correspondence, as Mr. Sagan pointed out, uh, in terms of at least comparatively to other theistic traditions, long sense of duration of time in the world in the Hindu scriptures not found in, in say, the Christian text or the Quran or something like that. Um, there's not, I don't mean to say in any way that there's a precise correspondence, but there's a, an interesting, uh, compelling, perhaps, Correspondence, at least for those who are trying to uh, reason about their faith in light of modern, the modern world and its findings and thinking and so forth. The idea of the day of Brahma is that um, I don't know it's what eight, eight billion, four hundred some, thirty four hundred thirty two thousand years. Is a billion? Something like that. Four million three hundred twenty thousand years is big one cycle of yugas. And his his yugas he goes through how many cycles? Hundred of those in one day. Hundred of those in one day. So I had two more zeros. Mm-hmm. Four hundred million. So the the the, uh, the yuga cycle itself is a long time. Hmm? 
And if you took a hundred of those yoga cycles together, you've got a Divya Yuga, so to speak. It's, 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 and that's one day of Brahma. And Brahma and Nara is remembering back, oh, in a previous birth I had, in a previous day of Brahma, I, I want to um, tell you something about my life. Is what, it's, what he says here. He says, I was born in a previous day of Brahma, as a certain son of a maidservant, engaged in the service of uh, sadhus, who were uh, really Vedantists, and uh, they were living together. Uh, ideas at my house during the four months of the rainy season. At that time, as I was engaged in their personal service. So this is a long, long time ago. Hmm? This uh, uh, remembrance of Narada is peculiar. We find in the Bhagavad Gita that Krishna tells Arjun, after all, Narada is a devotee of Krishna, and Arjuna is a devotee of Krishna. In the fourth chapter of the Gita, Krishna speaks about the, the history of the teachings that he's giving to Arjuna, and he says that, that it's, it's, a, it's a, an ancient tradition. Hmm? This was taught, he said, by the sun god and to Kshvaku, uh, Kshvaku to Manu, and so it's been handed down over a long period of time. He says, Many, many births you have had, and I, and I remember them all, and you don't. Hmm? I've appeared at different times, I remember, and you've appeared many times, but you don't remember them. Here, Nara is remembering. Not only his previous birth, and he didn't undergo any kind of hypnotic uh, life uh, regression <laughs> to find out he was a king in the previous life, a pharaoh in Egypt, and... Uh, and uh, usually that's what happens. I think they give this hypnotic, what do they call it, life regression? Uh, past, past, past life regressions. And it just found out you were this really fantastic person in your last life. And I always wonder why people say, well, what happened <laughs> this time? <laughs> last time I was a pharaoh in Egypt. I was entombed and, there and so forth. So, no. Um, but how did he remember? After all... Teaching in the Gita is that the that the, the the ordinary jiva doesn't remember, and Krishna remembers, and that differentiates him from 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 them. He's God, hmm? all knowing at all times. He appears in the world of his own will. Hmm? We were studying about Shiva, who's a manifestation of Krishna, and how he willingly places himself within the modes of nature and associates with the Tamaguna. It's not that he's controlled by the Tamaguna and was was born in that situation without any conscious uh, planning or willing, as is the case of the ordinary soul. So it, it, it different. And Vishnu's uh, more so the same appearance in the world is very different from that of the ordinary people. But... So why there's no remembrance? Hmm? Well, um, I guess we would say that the remembrance is is uh, contained in something that itself is is dismantled. Hmm? Um, although the subtle body remains, and there are impressions there and so forth, 
the faculty to draw upon that, the mental faculty and so forth, um, changes or transforms. Ultimately, the citta, the kind of internal organ of awareness that, that, that the self reflects on and thereby communicates with matter. Ultimately, it's taken over in bhakti by bhava and and so the liberated soul then doesn't remember the world. It's not like he's up there in Vaikuntha remembering, you know, all these different lives and all the people and so forth. It, it's not like that. Hmm? The memory is completely uh, a material thing that's, that's, that's done away with. There may be some, there is, of course, some other way of, of, of knowing kind of a semi-omniscience on the part if you will, or qualified omniscience on the part of the fully liberated soul in the spiritual world that allows that person to be a um, a person that you can pray to, for example, whose who's samadhi, where his body or hers is in tune, you can go and, and uh, you can uh, pray, get feel their presence, get inspiration, and so forth. Um, but that's different than just remembering, you know, as 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 we do with our faculty of of memory. So, in the case of Nard, of course, he's an extraordinary liberated person. He's going to tell his story here of his own liberation and his development of prema. Hmm? For the uh, last few verses of this chapter, and then with questions that follow in the next chapter by Vyas about what he says here a further and more detailed description of this previous life. And as we see, he was remembering it in some detail. So this is a special kind of a concession that Bhagwan gives him remembrance for the sake of teaching. Uh, the remembrance of Nard's previous life comes up here, and it comes up again in the seventh canto of the Bhagavatam, where he remembers a life previous to the life that he's speaking about here. Hmm? Uh, Previous in the day of Brahma, long, long time ago. When we when we hear the day of Brahma, long time, of course, as Gaudiya Vaishnavas, our mind goes to Rupa Goswami's verse that he introduced his uh, his uh, Brahma Vidagdhamadava with that uh, Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami uh, took advantage of and placed in his Mangalacharana of the auspicious invocation of the Chaitanya Charitamrita. Now, one of three verses that describe the significance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's descent. There he says, Rupa Goswami's verse, Anar Pita Charim Chirat Samayar Pahitam Unatodu Rasam Sabakti Sriyam Hari Purata Sundra Duti Kadamba Sandi Pita Sadavadaya Kandare Spuratu Vasachinandana this is describing the external reason for Krishna's descent as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as an acharya, as a devotee, acharya, acharya lila, anarpita, not bestowing, anarpita charim chirat, for a very long time. So his explanation of that verse, the long time, Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami says, is once in the day of Brahma. He wants to stress the rarity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance. We study the verse carefully in his commentary. We see he also wants to connect 
the rarity of his, his appearance, or, or demonstrates the rarity of Chaitanya, Krishna's appearance as Chaitanya, with the um, the time for the Kali Yuga avatar, and speaks of a, then an arpita charimshrat kalyabhutanakolo samarpaitam, anarpitam samarpaitam, not bestowed for a long time, samarpitam, bestowing in a big way. Something very extraordinary. Unatolzudarasam sabatisriyam. The very height of the sacred uh, uh, jewel of, of rasa, of aesthetic rapture upon the world, opening the doors to his pastoral brajalila <coughs> and love of God and intimacy. Hmm? He wants to say, this is a very rare thing. So he, explaining the word of Rupa Goswami, he takes the liberty, Krishna Skavirata, I should say following in the wake of, the, of his predecessors, uh, to uh, explain it in terms of the Vedic uh, cosmology, his poetic way, once in the day of Brahma, long, long time. Hmm? And there's a Brahma, he has four heads, he has a long life, and, and so forth. We shouldn't think that these poetic descriptions are somehow less real than mathematical descriptions. As I'm trying to point out, they are... Uh, someone who speaks more and is more preoccupied with, about and more preoccupied with consciousness is arguably more in tune with what the world is really like. Hmm? And if, they, and they, if then they use the same kind of poetic language to talk about matter, which is whose whose background is consciousness, hmm? we're not moving away to a less precise understanding of matter. Hmm? The more so-called precise understanding of matter derived from math and modern science is has been causing consciousness to disappear from the scene. So how close are we getting to understand the whole thing, which is? the combination of consciousness and matter, but really nobody can deny that. Hmm? What consciousness is, that people will define it in different ways, as it were, but, it, but the world as a consciousness is a combination of observer and observed. That's uh, undeniable. So, this four-headed Brahma, somebody asked me about this, are there really gods? Or are you just like, are you just like a metaphor? <laughs> I mean, it is metaphorical language, it is poetic language, but but... I don't mean to say that that makes it less real. Hmm? That may uh, uh, be a, a more um, beautiful, compelling, accurate way to talk about matter for that matter, which is also vast. And and if anything, math is telling us about, uh, and physics about the material world, the nature, as we go on with it, is that it's like, we're kind of coming to this. Same conclusion. They had that Hubble with the telescope, and they thought there was what one galaxy or something like that it was ours or something, and then they found there was five hundred thousand galaxies from the Hubble telescope. That's pretty interesting. Like whoa, change of perspective. Hmm? And so, according to the, the Vedanta, the, the material world is also not a limited thing. That's hard to get between your ears. It's unlimited. It has no beginning. It has no end. It comes and goes in cycles, but the cycles themselves have no beginning and no end. So they're described as the breathing, out-breath, the inner-breath of Vishnu, like the 
the, the, the expanding and the contracting of the universe. There are scientific theories like this, which is, again, another correspondence with, with Hinduism. But the bottom line, in a sense, is that when, well, when, when Parikshit Marsh asked Sukadev to explain the material world so that he could better appreciate the person behind it all, Sukadev said, well, I'll do what I can. It's basically a transformation of the modes of nature. There's, there's, no, there's no end to it. You could kind of talk about it in terms of beginning cycles, end cycles, but there's no beginning to the first cycle, or there's no first cycle. And, and uh, it's as extraordinary. Um, if you explore it, even mathematically, it starts to sound as bizarre as some of the philosophical and theological descriptions of nature found in the Bhagavatam. There's a um, we review we, we printed a review of a book by Brian Green, a physicist, whose the brother happens to be a devotee. Um, and uh, it was a, a, his newest book. He's a popular author and physicist. Uh, and it was a book about the multiverse idea and the reviewer starts his review by citing uh, the Bhagavad Gita's 11th chapter where Krishna is showing Arjuna that the whole universe is inside of him and he's got millions of mouths and heads and, and so forth and he says this sounds like what Brian Greene is talking about <laughs> in his book and, and the irony of how the superstitious past that had thought to be have been retired by science was now coming around and showing its its uh, its its face right in the lab so to speak uh, yeah that's kind of what it's like it's, it's something something like that uh, undescribable and unlimited and something you can't fit in your in your head and so on and so forth so so there's a Brahma anyway and he has long life and and Nara is remembering pr- the previous day of uh, day of day of Brahma and he wants to sp- uh, how in that life he got the benediction of bhakti hmm? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was coming once in the day of Brahma to give a very special benediction a special kind of of bhakti, hmm? Nard, as we'll see in these uh, this this in the next chapter, is a vaidhi bhakta. So his bhakti is different than the virag bhakti that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to give. Hmm? Um, but that's also uh, described in the Bhagavatam for the sake of comparison. Aishvarya gyan and Madhurya gyan, knowledge of the godhood of God and knowledge of the sweetness. Of God, indeed, the book, the Bhagavatam, walks a tightrope, so to speak, between emphasizing the godhood of God and the sweetness of the Godhead, Krishna, that makes him seem ordinary, that makes that 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 speaks of his accessibility, his his uh, human-likeness, and. Uh, that by closeness to us, with his closeness to us, is, is the farthest from us at the same time when properly understood. And, and uh, Rag Bhakti is the means to bridge that, that gap. And so, forth. so anyway, there's no, without talking about the 
godhood of the Godhead, how will you talk about the sweetness when the sweetness is constituted of how the Godhead, who's all-powerful, is acting like an ordinary human. That's sweet, that's charming. So you need both. So he's walking this tightrope between the two when he describes the Leelas in the tenth canto and so forth of uh, Sri Krishna. So at any rate, Nard is weighing in largely on that side, but he's a devotee of Krishna. Hmm? So he can be a devotee of Krishna in Vaidhi Bhakti also, as well as in Raga Bhakti. And as we'll hear in a couple of verses, these sages that he met, hmm, they were devotees of Krishna. They were Vedantists, but they were, they were, as Prabhupada termed them in his translation, Bhakti Vedantas. And the text, um, a couple of texts from here, brings that point out here. So he met them. He's describing his previous life. And as I said, uh, he also describes life previous to that. Later in Bhagavatam, the seventh canto, when he's speaking to the Raj um, Yudhisthira, He's describing Yudhisthira as a householder, and he asks how householders can become enlightened as much as householder life is often a thought to be a distraction because you have to maintain um, uh, family and yeah, children may have wills of their own and so on and so forth, and you may not have the full time of, in that situation of focus on spiritual life like ideally um, a monastic setting affords one. So he was asking that there seems to, this seems to be an impediment, and uh, so how can the householder become uh, well early? Krishna conscious is what he wants to know. Yudhisthira, yes, Nard. Of course, Nard explains over some chapters, and um, he concludes that whole description with a remembrance of a recollection, a retelling of a previous life of his previous, as I say, to this life as well. Hmm? He says that, um, that, uh, that he basically says bhakti is such that household life is no impediment. From the Varnashram point of view, the, 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 uh, it, it may be looked at as an impediment. Hmm? But from the bhakti point of view, it doesn't have to be. Hmm? Um, and so he he glorifies the ahoituki of bhakti. How it, in any in any situation, it's uh, it, it can it can be uh, uh, engaged in. There's no qualification for it. You don't have to be a sannyasi to be a devotee. Hmm? Bhakti will, as we'll hear, bhakti will make you renounced. Bhakti will give you good qualities. Of, of her, even if you have bad qualities, bhakti may come to you. It may give you, not that you have to have certain amount of good qualities, certain amount of renunciation in order to be qualified for bhakti. Oh, she's very, very generous. Hmm. So uh, he emphasizes that point, and he, once again, as repeatedly comes up in the Bhagavatam, emphatically states bhakti trumps varnashram, this parodharma. Hmm. This is the beginning and ongoing kind of question of the Bhagavatam, uh, coming from the sages, coming from the king, Parikshit, who was cursed to die, and so forth, asking Sukhamuni what to do. What is the thing that the human society should be preoccupied with? Hmm? And the answer repeatedly is, 
not with the ordinary dharma, but there's something we call parodharma, another bhakti, a super-religious idea. Bhagavatam, this is his, his speciality, it says, it says, in answer to the question, what should, what should we be preoccupied with? We, we're only here for so long. We all have to die. What should we be preoccupied with? It says, not religion. <laughs> what? This is a spiritual book. Not religion. You sure about that? Mm-hmm. And what it, what it means by religion, of course, is, is the general idea of religion, which is a, a sophisticated and God-blessed way of acquiring. Mm-hmm. But it also says not by giving up things, not by getting things, asking God for things, not by understanding the futility of things and giving them up. Karma or Dharma and Gyan, but Bhakti. Mm-hmm. So there in that section, again, he emphasizes the conclusion of this whole description of how uh, the householder could become enlightened through Bhakti. He says, you're a very great devotee, you should know this. Practically, he says, you here. Krishna's living in your house sometimes. Mm-hmm. He says, but it can happen to anybody. It happened to me also. And he tells his life. I was a, in Gandharva Loka. This is a high, kind of a religiously high birth. And the Gandharvas are the, the celestial musicians. So you can imagine how sophisticated their, their music is. And he says, I had a very beautiful, handsome form, and I was quite uh, a ladies' man. And uh, the Prajapatis were performing a function for the glorification of Vishnu. They were doing a Harikata uh, and Sankirtan, as Prabhupada translates it. And so I was invited. And there I went, very proud of myself, surrounded by ladies, in an enjoying spirit. Hmm? I, um, I didn't uh, uh, have the right attitude to come into Harikata, and so I committed an offense. I was singing my own songs and saying, listen to me. Uh, uh, they were doing the Harikata, singing about Vishnu and so forth. And, and so the, 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 the sages, they, they cursed me. And as a result of that, he said, I uh, had to take birth in the birth that he's describing here as the son of a maidservant. The son of the maidservant is a um, a very um, polite way of saying, I was born and I didn't know who my father was. Hmm. So that's not considered to be the greatest birth on earth, uh, the best situation, the most favorable situation to be, uh, to be born in. I was an accident. Yeah. It wasn't planned out, it wasn't thought out. And, and so forth, and so they didn't know what to do with me, kind of a situation from, from, from the Gandharva's birth to this. I descended at the, because of my offense. But, because I had nonetheless come in touch with the Sangha of uh, devotees glorifying Vishnu, which has a purifying effect, even if one doesn't know what it is, even if one is opposed to it, but comes in touch with it. 
if you touch fire, you get burned. It doesn't matter if you don't want to or think you won't. Something like that. So there are certain... There's a type of bhakti. We call it svarupsita bhakti. That, that is inherently bhakti. That, that even if you don't do it consciously, it's bhakti. Kirtan is like that. So it will have some effect in due course. So he offended the kirtan, and still he got the result for the offense, but he got a good result also. What was that? The bad result was he got this low birth by comparison, and he was in a very beautiful body, so it said, the implication is here that he wasn't the greatest looking kid on earth either. And, um, and, uh, <laughs> and, but in his, in the place where he was staying, the good fortune that came to him was that as the rainy season came on, the sages that would travel uh, not to stay in one place for too long and be attached. And, and they would travel with a sense of, I depend only on Vishnu for my maintenance. So I can go into a fresh and new situation, I can ride my bike to Costa Rica, and whatever happens, I have faith. Krishna will provide tortillas for me. Uh, he will provide my, my, my maintenance. I'll take the risk, something like that. Hmm? So they would keep on the move and, and, and seek to validate that, that there was a, a maintainer and it wasn't themselves. They got what they needed. Hmm? And not always what they wanted. <laughs> not what they need. So, uh, and they learned that, you know, what, what, one, should, what one should want, <laughs> so to speak. So, um, so, during the rainy season, of course, that traveling is inhibited during the monsoons. So they would hold up in one place, and then they would, typically, they would undergo some regimes, often of fasting and heavy practice and so forth. Um, and um, so they were involved in that, and that in the context of discussing about Krishna. And so they were holding these discussions, they were hosted in the house. There was a there was a place for that in the culture for hosting the sadhus and so, and, and and whatnot. Some greater sense of hospitality, like we were discussing earlier today, you can find that to some extent here in Costa Rica compared to North America. If some guy just shows up in your in your yard and says, "Can I pitch my tent here tonight?" They you know call out the pit bull uh, <laughs> and uh, the militia, you know, to uh, incarcerate the fellow. Uh, so it's a little bit more hospitable in these parts. And so uh, it is like that in India too, and uh, more so in times gone by, especially for sadhus, there was a place for them. The sadhus were considered like the fathers of the society as well as the, like the children of the society who would be taken care of by the households, provided for, and so forth. They would provide for them, their needs, take care of them like children, and listen to them like elders. Mm-hmm. So with regard to their material needs, minimal as they were, they would be provided for as if they were children and had no other way to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And with regard to what they had to say, and they would only speak, they would only eat as much as they, had, they needed energy to speak about, mm-hmm. that which they were preoccupied with, 
disregarded what they would what they would take in and with their mouth, they would be children, and what would come out of it, they would be the fathers, the elders of the, of the society to educate the public. So, householders would readily welcome them, and so here, during the rainy season, they stayed at his house, and he became engaged by their grace, you can say, in, in um, their personal service. So this was then the opportunity, the further opportunity that came to him as a result of his being in touch with the Sankirtan in Gandharvaloka. He got the downside of the low birth, but with it came a good opportunity, a further opportunity for Bhakti. And as we see, he took advantage of it. So what's happening here is, as I said, he has already given the teachings, now he's reiterating them. And he's reiterating them. He gave them in a philosophical sense. We've plumbed to some extent the depth of that. And now he's going to tell the same, give the same teaching, but in a story format. Uh, telling about his own life. This is always, of course, very interesting, the story. The story about the sadhu's life and how he learned things himself and, and so forth. Is uh, makes for compelling uh, listening. Hmm? And that's why, for example, Jiva Goswami has given emphasis on the Puranas over the Vedas. The Vedas and the Upanishads are more abstract in their teaching. They more directly, the Upanishads, which is the later section of the Vedas, speak about spiritual life. Hmm? But they do it in a very abstract way. Whereas the Puranas speak about that same thing through so many narratives, which are interesting to read and uh, uh, capture the attention of the common person, and they play out the implications of those Upanishadic teachings in, uh, in, in a way that Jiva Goswami says the Puranas Purna. Purna means complete. They complete the whole thing. Therefore, he gave his emphasis to the Puranas over the Upanishads, which is was like a revolutionary kind of a thinking, very compared to how Vedantins, Vedantists had thought about the two uh, types of literature, the Shruti, that which is heard directly, and the Smriti, which is, re, which is a remembrance based on hearing and retelling and so forth. So he gave emphasis to the Smriti, the Puranas, and amongst the Puranas, of course, he gave emphasis to Suman Bhagavatam, full of stories, hmm? as we're hearing. Here's Narad's one story, he gave another story in his life, and so forth. We find this kind of format in also in Brihad Bhagavatamrita, where Gopakumar tells his life story. It's very compelling and an easy way to get the teaching. So he's going to emphasize bhakti over karma and gyan and the efficacy of bhakti and so forth here now through the story of his life. He'll go through it here in several uh, verses, and there'll be a one way of looking at that is that he'll be talking about it in such a way as to show the different stages of um, of bhakti, from initial faith or initial sadhusanga that leads to faith to another kind of sadhusanga that in which the guru appears and we embark upon the path um, um, formerly ourselves up to praying. Encapsulated in a few verses. This is how. Vishnachakutakura has explained this section. It can also be explained in an expanded way, which I think is more perhaps true to the text, in such that the 
more lengthy description that follows in the second in the sixth chapter as well leads to the uh, development of brain rather than it all developing here before the elaboration on his life that he gives in the next chapter which picks up um, after the short story here short story here is he met the sages um, they taught him uh, he developed his mother died and uh, he took to the spiritual life Vyasa is going to ask in the next chapter what happened then <laughs> where'd you go then what, what, what and then so that extended explanation is a more gradual kind of a build up if I think can be read uh, to pray but anyway it's taking us through in either case uh, through the different stages of bhakti and showcasing emphasizing bhakti in relation to karma and jnana, its efficacy its um, value which is what he wanted to tell Vyas and to relieve him of his despondency how he should Vyas now write a book which became the Srimad Bhagavatam which gives full emphasis uh, to bhakti so we'll continue that with our next discussion any question? Earlier, earlier you mentioned uh, the chitta, in, I guess, in, con- in the context of explaining that the sages are more interested in consciousness, consciousness than matter. And um, early in his commentary on Madhurya Kadambani, well, the commentator me- uh, mentions that chitta is something like the subconscious. Can you say something about that? We were trying yeah. to understand that. And I I think that um, a good number of people, thoughtful people, really stretch to try to come up with some language to explain chitta, <laughs> which is difficult to explain, even though it's material. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a yogic terminology. It's a Vedanta term. Um, it doesn't correspond with our modern understanding of mind. It's a compartmentalizing of 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 mind. Um, but um, subconscious, I suppose uh, that would be one word to use. But but then you, then you think Freud's subconscious and all that, and then, that, then you look at that, and it doesn't really correspond in the same way. So, uh, you know, I've used the word subconscious to describe matter. Mm-hmm. Matter is the subconscious of, of Brahman, <laughs> something like that. So, uh, so uh, we try, you know, to use different words to explain it. But uh, I think that the, uh, the idea of a, some type of subtle hmm, matter, mind, is not the sum and substance of consciousness as it's thought of, for example, in neuroscience and philosophy of mind. There's the argument of mind and brain. Are they one and the same or are they different? And if mind is different, is it ontologically different? And when they speak about that mind, they're, they're, they're making this huge blur from our perspective. Consciousness. Hmm? We say, wait a minute, let's break that up a little bit here. Mind is, is a subtle form of matter through which consciousness, which is 
ontologically different from mind. Hmm? Mind is not ontologically different from matter entirely. It is and it isn't. It's a subtle form of matter. And it's the vehicle through which consciousness, which is categorically different, communicates with gross matter through that. And when we speak like that, we're speaking about the chitta aspect of mind and the subtle body. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu described it like a mirror. Chaita means chitta. Chaito darpana marjana. Darpana means mirror, marjana means to clean. He said, cleanse the mirror of your consciousness. So it's like this, the chitta, like, you know, your, your, your capacity to, um, or intelligibility, to, to participate in intelligibility. Hmm? Uh, 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 um, so if you take the mirror of your chitta and you place it towards material things and all these uh, uh, rittis, like waves, if you will, will come on the, on the chitta and will be carried by those and identified with the material world and yoga, the ideas of chitta vritti niroda, to like make the that body of water, the chitta here described like ocean, like flat. Mm-hmm. So it's not tossing and turning in relation to the material world. But in bhakti, the idea is to have bhakti come on the the uh, the chitta. So you cleanse. How how therefore how do you cleanse the uh, the chitta, the organ, internal organ uh, in bhakti? You put Krishna on it. And so it becomes bhakti vritti. You get this bhakti vritti, this wave, and that's bhava. So bhava comes on the chitta. Rupa Goswami describes it in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. What does he say? He says, Sudha sattva visheshatma prema suryam susamyabhak. Chitta, something. Anyway, he describes it, comes on it, it takes over, the the example sometimes given, if you took an iron rod and you put it in the fire for a long time and took it out and I touched you with it, you wouldn't say, why did you touch me with an iron rod? You'd say, you burnt me. In other words, you you touched me with fire. It's an iron rod, but it becomes fireized, something like that. So the consciousness, this chitta, this organ, uh, that consciousness communicates with matter through becomes spiritualized entirely. It develops this bhakti, this wave of bhakti. So there's this movement in relation to Krishna, instead of this movement in relation to matter, and instead of this non-movement of the yogi, there's this another kind of animation. It's Krishna, a Krishna-animated life, rather than a worldly animated life, which is kind of a death, if you will, one dead end after another, but different also than the, 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 uh, the stopping of that kind of uh, dead end pursuit onto itself. No, it's the starting of something else, another another life under the influence of bhakti. So anyway, it's a, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu described it as a, as a mirror, and it's now full of this... Uh, it's, it's oriented towards the world, and so it's got reflection of the world, or these rittis, and so to take it 
oriented towards Krishna will cleanse out those and then it will be taken over. This is how the Shikshastakam progresses. It will be taken over entirely by the Swarup Shakti, the internal energy of Krishna. So I, I, I don't think the word subconscious, you know, that when I, what it conjures up in our minds as to how the world is used, I, I suppose it could be used just in a generic sense, the subconscious. It's like the, the chitta is not a conscious thing, but it becomes animated by consciousness in such a way that it acts like like a conscious thing. This is kind of, in a general sense, the difference between the mind as a sense and the other five senses. We differentiate the mind from the five senses, but sometimes we also call the mind the sixth sense. But it's very different than the other senses because it has the capacity to take the shape of a thing that it identifies with and transform and so forth. We don't think of our tongue like that or our sense of hearing like that. It's more kind of linear and mind's going to be more multidimensional and and so the mind can take the shape. Hmm? The, the mind take the shape of bhakti. Now it's taking the shape of material things and we have an identity that's corresponding with that. So it's 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 uh, it's consciousness like. It's kind of more like consciousness than than the than the gross senses are. Hmm? So no wonder it's it's thought to be identified entirely with consciousness, for example, in science of mind or in, or in neuroscience. So there's some agreement there. And then on that, it's a subtle, subtle thing. What else? Alright,